Years ago when I was a little kid, which by now would be quite a few years ago, growing up in uh, southern Arizona, I was given a children's book. Some of you may recognize this book or remember it. And I think uh, it was also in my my mother's generation and my grandmother's generation. It goes clear back to the late 1800s. It was, it was entitled, The Little Engine That Could. Now, some of you may remember that. Perhaps I was barely able to read at that time, but it had an impact on me. Uh, maybe a four-year-old or a five-year-old, can't remember. It had a lot of impact on others. And it went something like this. Uh, I'll paraphrase to give you a little bit of a feel. A little railroad engine was employed about a station yard for such work as it was built for, pulling a few cars on and off the switches. One morning it was waiting for the next call when a long train of freight cars asked a large engine in a roundhouse to take it over the hill. I can't. That's too much of a pull for me, said the great engine built for hard work. And then the train asked another engine and another, only to hear excuses to be refused. In desperation, the train asked the little switch engine to draw it up the grade and down on the other side. I think I can. I think I can, puffed the little locomotive and put itself in front of the great heavy train. And it went on. The little engine kept bravely puffing faster and faster. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. And as it neared the top of the grade, which had so discouraged the larger engines, it went more slowly. However, it kept saying, I think I can, I think I can. It reached the top by drawing on bravery, and then it went on down the grade, congratulating itself by saying, I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could. Now, I hope you don't take this as indicative of the books I'm reading lately, but I remember it uh, over the years and over the decades as well. And it, I think it in, in encapsulated kind of a thought that can apply to us in a lot of different ways. How often do we limit our ability to succeed? And I'll put it this way, spiritually, with negative thinking. With negative thinking, with our behavior or performance of the past. Unfortunately, it's probably all too often. It probably affects all of us to one degree or another. How often do we try to succeed on our own and have little success? And I would imagine probably way too often also. So this afternoon I'd like to look at critical principles of spiritual success that either can help us or hurt us, whether or not we use them effectively. So the title of this sermon is, Yes, I can with God's help. We add with God's help there because that's the key component in accomplishing what we want to accomplish in our spiritual growth and in the work of God as well. To begin with, let's remind ourselves to start that God is only looking for a few who truly do develop God's mindset by growing spiritually throughout life. It's not a one-shot deal. It's not up to baptism and then we're done. And for the rest of our life, we know the ancient Gnostics behaved and believed that the secret to life involved highly specialized knowledge. Gnosticism comes from the Greek term meaning to know. Well, our Bible reveals that there is 
specialized knowledge, so we know that is true. The truth of God, we call it the truth that only at this moment in time, for now, the first fruits are fully given in this life, but all of humanity in time will have access and will have their opportunity, as we know. That being said, there is needed knowledge today for us that's crucial to our success, but we in the living church of God, we're not Gnostics. We know it takes more than knowledge. It takes effort. Acquired knowledge is needed. We know that God also judges us. We're being judged now in our life. Our worthiness based on our spiritual growth, on the kind of effort we put into it now. Not just a drift, but effort into changing and growing year by year. We've got to change. We've got to grow, even if we've been in the church for 30, 40, 50 years. We're not done. There's more to accomplish. We all know this. That's common knowledge. But sometimes we get swallowed up in self-doubts. In self-doubts, well, I grew up this way. You just don't know my background. You don't know how I was raised. You don't know what my childhood was like. I've never been a people person. That's just not me. And however else we want to, let's say, box ourselves in with our past. I remember years ago visiting a church area in the West and giving a sermon on building the spiritual family. In other words, in the congregation. And it just so happened that there was a new gentleman there, an older guy. looked looked a little rough around the edges, but he was there. And after the sermon on building a spiritual family, he came up to me afterwards and he said, I don't know if I can do that. I've been a loner all my life. I'm not a people person. I just don't know that I can do that. And, you know, uh, that was his thinking at the moment. But I said, if God is calling you, you can change with God's help. He calls us to change. God doesn't call us to, to failure. He calls us to success. This gentleman, I don't think uh, he chose to go the right way. I think he saw that roadblock in his life, decided it wasn't yet for him. We all have choices, don't we? We have choices in life continually. Let's notice as we start Christ's parable of the need to grow and change and produce. And some of the parables I think we can identify with us readily if we've had a little bit of experience in the garden and growing things. Luke chapter 13. Let's start with Luke chapter 13 and beginning in verse 6. Luke 13, verse 6. And Christ was speaking here. He says, He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? And, you know, of course, exactly when a person plants a fig tree or any other kind of tree, you plant it for one reason. Normally it's not for shade, but you plant a tree for the sole purpose of that type of tree, especially a fig tree, producing fruit, figs or maybe peaches or whatever kind of tree it is, but you want something from it. That's the reason you plant it. When I was a teen, 
I was responsible. My parents uh, owned some apartments, and we had a back lot, and I was responsible of taking care of a number of citrus trees, and it fell my lot to uh, watch over them and water them and fertilize them. And we had some grapefruit and oranges and lemons and limes, tangerines, that type of thing. And uh, one year during a real cold spell, actually in Tucson, the high desert, and it froze. And one of the citrus froze below the graft and down low. And, of course, the natural rootstock grew out, but it never produced any fruit from that point forward. Uh, It never produced again. No fruit, no purpose for this particular tree. So, obviously, I took this tree out. I cut it back, planted something else. Christ also used another parable that I think we can also understand in a similar vein, a similar way. If a grapevine doesn't produce grapes, it needs to be cut out and pruned. And pruned, pruning sometimes does the job. No grapes, no wine. John 15, we'll look at this other parable. John chapter 15 and verse verse 1. Start with verse 1. Christ said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. That's why we plant trees, and that's why we plant vines. We want something back. Grapes, maybe eventually wine. If we have received God's spirit, he expects us to produce, doesn't he? There's an analogy. He expects something back. He expects us to produce. Though God is patient with us, he gives us lots of time, as long as we live. He still expects us to produce growth and godly character over a period of years and decades. And if we haven't produced enough growth or much growth, God will prune us. Now, we may not like to be pruned. We may not like the sound of being pruned, but God is after quality, isn't he? Quality production. You know, wines are, are rated according to their quality. It's kind of subjective. But wine in general, the best wines on some of the rating scales are rated 90 and above. For example, Wine Spectator's 100-point scale, 95 to 100, a classic, a great wine. Maybe something we might have at the feast sometime, if we can afford it. 90 to 94, outstanding, superior character and style. 80 to 89, good to very good, wine with special qualities. 70 to 79, average, drinkable wine, and may have some minor flaws. Well, this may be in the category of what we used to think of as two-buck chuck uh, out in California. Uh, In reality, it's no longer two-buck chuck. It's now close to three-buck chuck. (laughs) So it's changing. I don't know the quality has improved, but it's more expensive. 60 to 69, below average, drinkable but not recommended. I think of this in yesteryear when our four children were into their early teens and above. We would buy, back then, box wine. Now, box wine's 
better today, I understand. But back then, it, uh, it was drinkable, but barely. It was affordable wine. And then we have 50 to 59. Poor, undrinkable, not recommended. I, I think of that as maybe the first wine I ever made in a crock. You know, you put a bunch of you put a bunch of grapes in there, and uh, you stomp them or whatever, and you just assume it's going to make great wine because you have grapes. It doesn't work that way. Sometimes you get vinegar. Well, that's the rating scale. You know, in, interestingly, God Himself has a rating scale for His potential firstborn sons. So He evaluates us according to where He can put us in His family in the future. That rating scale is called the fruit of the Spirit, something that God looks at, he wants. We'll get back to that a little bit later, the fruit of the Spirit. And if we don't produce fruit and stay connected to the vine, Jesus Christ, on a regular basis, Christ stated in John 15, 6, verse 6, chapter 15, if anyone does not abide in me, He is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Well, that's something, of course, that we don't want to happen to any of us as well. doesn't have to. God gives us the ability to succeed, as we will see in the sermon here. On the other hand, if we're still connected to the vine but produce only a little fruit, you know, we're not putting a lot of effort into it, a little bit of fruit. Christ indicated we will be pruned. And sometimes we are pruned in life, aren't we? Things happen. It's not an ideal world. Um, and we either grow better from the process or we grow bitter. Sometimes we have a choice. We have a fork in the road. And again, pruning may not be pleasant to us human beings, but it can stimulate us to produce. That can happen if we see it that way, if we analyze it that way. Way back when, when I was taking care of citrus trees for my parents, I noticed one tree that produced only a few fruit each year. It probably was an orange, but it really wasn't with it. The other trees were producing, and I wasn't really sure what to do. I mean, what do you do to a tree? Talk to it more, or how do you go about it? Fertilize it? But I had an uncle who had uh, some large orchards and different kinds of trees. And he was visiting from California, from the Central Valley, and and he decided he was going to prune this almost non-producing citrus tree. And he went at it, and I was a little apprehensive because he really butchered it. And it looked looked to me like he ruined this tree. It looked kind of bare, uh, heavy-duty pruning. But, you know, within a couple of years, it was outproducing all the rest of the trees. It really began to produce. It kind of like shocked it into producing, into growth. You know, that can happen with human beings as well, can it? Sometimes if we read it the right way, it can stimulate us to a higher performance, a better life, a better future. Are we producing as we should? And we have to ask ourselves that, that question. Are we producing as we should? We know the truth, but, of course, God's way is far more than just knowing the truth. We have to become the truth in a way, live the truth. So are we producing spiritual fruit? Do we need pruning? 
And again, we don't like the sound of that, but do we need pruning so God can more effectively use us in his family? Notice verse 5 of, of John 15. Verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. And he who abides in me, closely connected, and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. This kind of struck me thinking about this the other day, applying it to us without Christ in our life, without giving God control in our life. We, we're going to accomplish very little in our life. We might financially do okay, but anything lasting, like Solomon figured out, anything lasting, anything that will still be around in a century, in a millennium, uh, we're not going to accomplish on our own. It's going to be lasting. may sound a little bit depressing to some, I suppose. Without me, you can do nothing, nothing lasting, nothing that will be remembered as worthwhile. So it implies that of our own selves, there's not a whole lot that we're going to accomplish in our life spiritually on our own. Is this defeatist thinking? I don't think so. No, it's not. It can be encouraging when you begin to look at what Christ had to say. Even Jesus Christ stated the same thing about himself when he was on earth. John 5:30, chapter 5 this time. In verse 30, in verse 30 we read, I can, now this is Jesus the Christ, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Obviously, Jesus Christ had ability and talent and strength. But he said even of his own self, as a human being, if he tried to do things of his own, to go contrary to the plan, to the agenda that he and God the Father had agreed on, if he went another way, another purpose, doing it his way, he would accomplish nothing lasting. It wouldn't accomplish anything worthwhile covering us and our rebellions and our need to be forgiven. So if that was true for the Creator, who did have a lot of ability, obviously a lot of natural ability as a human being, it is certainly true for us today. Can I say a thousand times over? Again, is that discouraging? I don't think so. It's simply a reminder that apart from saying, very close to our God on a consistent basis. We're not going to accomplish very much on our own. You know, whatever talent we might think we have, we're not going to accomplish anything lasting and permanent that's going to be remembered in the future, just like Solomon said. You know, all his great works and all that he accomplished in his building projects and his gardens and beautiful orchestras and on and on and on. And Apart from God, he began to realize that until he fully turned to God, apparently, he said, I hated life. Probably the ultimate experiment in fulfilling your desires with all the asset base you could ever imagine. And he finally learned, apparently, that without God in our life, we're going to accomplish nothing lasting 
He said he who would follow him would probably, in a way, probably alter things. Uh, Solomon realized he would be forgotten. The only thing in the end that can be lasting is what we accomplish spiritually as we build character, literally the mind of God. It's difficult. It takes time. It's a lot more, isn't it, than just loving Jesus. That can be a start, but it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of overcoming and changing. So if we tell ourselves, of my own self, I can't really accomplish anything lasting or worthwhile. All by myself, it's just going to go nowhere. That thought will keep us centered. There's, there's a parallel thought we'll look at in a moment. But that thought can keep us centered, close to God. We recognize we have a need. We have a need from the Creator to be empowered, to be inspired, to be focused, and not get swallowed up by things happening around us in our own little world and the difficulties we have. And, of course, we know that with God's help and with his power, we will succeed. We can make real progress. This is a realistic positive mindset. Now, we're not talking about the power of positive thinking. That's something the world looks at and, you know, it accomplishes something. But we're talking about a positive mindset with the realization that of our own selves, we're not going to get very far, as we'll see shortly. But with Christ, we stay close to God, our highest priority in our life, and we're going to accomplish a lot that's lasting with the help of God. Kind of reminds me of, uh, again, of a mindset like the little engine that said, I think I can. In this case, we know we can with God's help. We have every reason to. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 12. Philippians 4 and verse 12. The Apostle Paul here, apparently in jail at the time, he had this to say, verse 12. He says, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Okay, I've had my ups and downs. How to be abased, how to abound. And everywhere, in all things, I have learned both to be full, and sometimes life can be pretty full, and to be hungry, you know, with great needs on different levels, both to abound and to suffer need at times. We all experience that. Then he went on to say something, I think, unique. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's kind of like shifting focus. Of my own self, I can do nothing lasting, but I can do anything that God calls me to do and accomplish in my life through Christ who strengthens me. It's it's really a shift in focus from kind of a loser mindset to a very successful mindset. Paul's reminding us again, there's ups, there's downs. After all, we're in Satan's world. We're being trained, all of us for leadership in the family of God, firstborn in the future family, eventually the earth, and in time the universe. Eventually God spreads his family. He's got more to accomplish. There's a vast universe out there, but that's later. That's down the road. And when we have a positive can-do, yes, I can, with God's help, mindset, depending on 
the one, Jesus Christ, he will be able to accomplish great things in her life. I'm talking about spiritual growth, overcoming hang-ups and baggage that we sometimes carry with us from the world, from the past. And we do, we can make spiritual progress. It's expected, it's doable, it's possible, and all the people of God have that option. The past doesn't determine our future, our future success. If we're staying close to God, fully depending on God, we have that in our mind. Okay, of my own self, I might veer off and get distracted. But if I'm close to God, I can accomplish anything that God has for me to do in my life. Anything includes getting rid of a few things possibly, some negative way of thinking, some hang-ups, some you know, character flaws that every human being has. How do we produce that fruit? I mentioned that that is kind of a measuring system, I guess. As God judges us, we're expected to produce. And if we don't produce enough, we'll be pruned. But sometimes pruning is, is worth the stress, worth the effort that we realize, okay, you know, there's more to life than my job or my surroundings. Uh, you know, I have a future in a family of God. How do we produce fruit? I want to list, summarize several points. I think I have four points about that important subject, producing fruit, being able to accomplish, being able to succeed, moving forward, and not just sitting, idling, you might say, or heading in reverse. Number one, we've already mentioned staying close to God, but what does that involve? That's one of the keys, obviously, and we know that. Sounds simple, just stay close to God. Question might be, are we making contact with God daily, a daily part of our life? You know, I know that's not the case in every situation. Some people assume that if they go to church on the Sabbath and the Holy Days, and they pray once in a while when they have time, when they can work it in, they're fine. But in re- reality, of course, we have to show God that he is the high point of our life. And he is training us for a career that we can't even imagine at this point in time, but it's outlined. And we're not in our real careers in this life. We're in training. We haven't graduated yet. We will, hopefully. Uh, all of us at Christ's return, then we move on to our real career as firstborn, first fruits of the family. Are we making contact with God daily? So many times over the years, I've counseled with people, and I think all the ministry have talked to people, who have really admitted that they don't have daily contact with God. They're busy. You know, life goes on. They got a job. They got children. They got this. They got that. And on a daily basis, it's tough, it's difficult. The normal excuse for, for most everyone is, I'm busy. You know, I'm busy, I got a job, I get up early, I have children. Um, or maybe I'm in college, I've got exams. I've counseled college students for baptism. I oftentimes ask them, well, how are we doing on the consistency now as you're preparing? And, and very often the answer is, well, I'm trying, but... You know, it's not every day. It's when I can work it in. That's fairly common. And I try to remind them that, you know, that's not showing God that he's first in your life. Maybe for the moment school or your job is first in your life. 
And the way we show God that he is first in our life is we put him first daily, not weekly or now and then when we have time. Of course, we all slip up. We all get distracted, and that's true. And God can forgive us, but we absolutely must show God that he's our highest priority in life. And that starts out daily. It's got to be done daily. can't be done weekly. What if husbands and wives only communicated with each other on weekends? How would that go? Uh, what if some, you know, our tendency is to only communicate with God, maybe on weekends or when we have time? What would that do for their relationship? They only communicated on weekends when they had time. What if a teen would only communicate with his parents on weekends when he had time? You know, how would that go in the family? Would that build a solid relationship? No. Of course, the same thing is true with God, building that kind of father-son relationship. If we're not consistent, even though we all make mistakes, but it, we should be consistent in showing God that he's number one in our life above all else, not even above father that is, father or mother, brother, sister, husband and wife should not be above God. We have to prove that and demonstrate that to God, even on a daily basis. I know that when I'm not close to God, you know, you skip a little bit of time or something, it's far easier to get a little bit carnal as far as your thoughts, your thinking. If you're not close to God daily, I think we can recognize that in our own selves. Not worth testing. <laughs> uh, we want to be a success. Another aspect of staying close to God is not just communicating daily, but also literally, literally figuratively, but it is literally. Physiologically, it's literally. Of putting our heart into our prayers. It is physiological. Psalm 119, 145. I'll read the brief thought here. I cry out with my whole heart. Hear me, O Lord. Have you ever noticed that when you pray with energy, you know the difference. When you pray with energy, even if you're praying silently, you don't have to yell. Some people talk. That's fine. Even silently, you're a whole lot more focused. You're a whole lot more real in your conversation. With the great God. Talking to God with all your heart does involve physical energy. Now, it is physiological. Uh, your, your pulse rate goes up. Your blood pressure probably rises a little bit as well. And that's the way God's created us. When we're intense, you know, our energy level increases in our body and our pulse rate increases. So God wants... As scriptures indicate, wholeheartedness in our prayers, in our study, in everything we do. Ecclesiastes 9.10, we know uh, as a summary of what God is looking for us, and from us rather, this applies even in our prayers, Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. In other words, if you're going to approach God, communicate with him, don't send up graffiti. Uh, approach him like he's real, like you're talking to the all-powerful God of the universe. Do it with your might. 
For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going, meaning the natural outcome of life is death, lack of consciousness. In other words, make it count while you're alive. Communicate with all your heart. Put your energy into it. And, of course, it's another way of saying, in reality, it's lasting. It's going to be lasting eternally when we put energy into our communication. And if you only put energy into material success in life, you're not going to find much reward in the grave, are you? The energy needs to be especially in our contact with the great God. Even career success is far inferior to spiritual success when we think about the big picture, eternity, no time limit, no end point. God prepares us for leadership in the family of God. Let me move on to a second point in producing spiritual fruit in our life is developing, I think of it, uh, developing a list, an agenda of things that we need to work on, concrete. It could be a mental list, or ideally it could be a written list. For some people, putting it down on paper makes all the difference because it becomes more real to them when they write it down. When we want to change, when we want to overcome, the more specific, the more concrete we can be, the more likely we are to act on it. It just works that way. It's more real to us. For example, for, for one to put on their, maybe they have a written change list, I need to be a better Christian. Now, how would that fly? It's so diffuse, so nonspecific, it's almost worthless without being specific. It's so generalized. It needs to be narrowed down. It's like a topic in a sermon or a sermonette, I guess such as narrowing down one's change list. Well, I need to develop more of a plan this year to become more active with hospitality and maybe fellowship, maybe both. Or I need to become less critical of others. That might be on somebody's agenda. Or maybe I need to pray and study daily. I need to make that my agenda now, to, to work towards that on a consistent basis I'm going to contact God daily, not weekly. Or I need to control my temper. I realize at times that my temper is runs away with me. It's knee-jerk response, the way we're kind of neurolo- we neurologically program ourselves. You know, whatever one's issue, whatever one's weakness, character flaw, human nature, we all have them. But one has to be specific. You want to make progress? You want to succeed? You have to be specific, something concrete that you can actually conceptualize. And if we don't have such a list, even a mental list, then we're not as likely to be energetic, are we? We're probably more likely to maybe be drifting a little bit, maybe even a little bit lukewarm, at least in our desire to produce spiritual fruit anyway, spiritual success which, of course, determines our future in the family of God. So to be focused, ideally, we narrow down the list, maybe down to two or three points, not 20. It's pretty hard to overcome 20 things at once, isn't it? 
We narrow it down. Two or three points, two or three areas we decide we want to work on for the next few months. It's concrete. It might be in our wallet or our head or somewhere. And we're going we're gonna to attempt these two or three points. Maybe it's just one. Until we succeed with God's help. Or maybe until next Passover, whatever the time frame is. There's no way that we could adequately focus our attention on a list of 20 things. It's too broad, too difficult to overcome 20 or 30 things, so we narrow it down. What if we come to the conclusion that we know we have areas we need to change, but we're just not motivated? I've had a number of people tell me, I'm just not motivated like I should be. Well, you know, it's time to admit to the only one who can help make a difference, and that is God himself. You know, God doesn't intend us to be that way. I think Philippians 2 is such a encouraging, when it comes to the issue of motivation, an encouraging thought, verse Philippians 2 and verse 12. Philippians 2 and verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, work at it. And here we get to verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will, in other words, to have the will, the desire, the motivation, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. The desire, the will, the motivation, and the ability to accomplish. It's God himself that can supply. And we recognize that of our own selves, we're not going to accomplish a whole lot. We have to go to the source. Notice that God himself actually can give us the will, then, in this verse. The desire the motivation to spiritually change, succeed. Not only can God give us then that will, but that ability. You know, we can, we can have uh, the wanna, the desire to change, but the ability to get the job done. You know, it takes some help from God to change carnal human beings, to make progress. You know, we spend years being programmed or programming ourselves in a natural way, according to our environment, maybe our parents' school system. We learn certain things, ways of interacting. And finally, when God opens our mind, we realize, whoa, I've got to deprogram. I've got to deprogram and reprogram, and it's difficult. I think everyone could admit that. It's difficult to reprogram ourselves God's way to get the job done. This is also dependent on the first point of staying close to God. Obviously, if we're not close to God on a daily basis, every day, we're not going to have that staying power that we really need to make progress on our list. Maybe our list of two or three issues, maybe we've had in our mind, but we haven't done anything with it. We know if we're going to please God and he's going to use us in a very significant way to help others, Maybe now, but even, but much more so in his family. We gotta make progress. And of course we know 
we've got to develop fruit, spiritual fruit, so God can use us more effectively uh, even now, but much more so in the family of God. Let me move on to a third category, third point, producing spiritual fruit. That is following the perfect example of the fruit of the Spirit, the perfect example that's ever lived, Jesus Christ himself. And you start analyzing the fruit of the Spirit in him, and you realize there's a high standard, but it's something we can follow, something we can imitate with God's help. Of course, we know in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, we find the fruit of the Spirit. You can call it the fruit. You can call it the mind of God what God is really like, how he thinks, how he lives. You know, it's a beautiful state of mind when you analyze that mindset of what he is, but what we can be to a degree. And these are attributes. If you approach the average guy on the street and you gave him these attributes, but you didn't tell him that they were biblical principles, you didn't tell him that, they would probably say, of course, I want to be like this. I would like to have a mind filled with peace and joy and self-control and all the rest. I want to be that way. Of course, when you add, well, it comes right out of the Bible. It's out of the mind of God. That might change their thinking. But in truth, everybody in the world, before it, it is attached to God, those who have prejudice, they want to be like this in their own way. Love a vital character trait of the great God, the greatest example of outgoing love, outgoing concern, Jesus Christ giving his life. And we know we cover that in the spring of the year. Don't we all want to be loved? Is there human beings who don't want to be loved? Every human being does. If we start showing more outgoing concern to others, we'll get more back. It's reciprocating. That's the law of God. How about joy? Joy is a special category. As Paul reminded the Hebrews, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy, notice that, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. A person might think, how in the world could you have any joy in that? Of course, Jesus Christ recognized, okay, this is the door. I complete my part in it, the sacrifice covering humanity's sins, and he begins to see the opportunity of the expansion of the family of God and ultimately his restoration, his resurrection. He knew it would soon be over, and for the joy, as the Scripture says, he endured that was set before him, endured the cross, despising, meaning literally disregarding, not despising, better translation, disregarding the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. No matter how things are going in our life, however we're situated, maybe less than a perfect job, who has the perfect job? Maybe our health is not the greatest and begins to decline or energy is lost or all kinds of health issues in this day and age. 
Or maybe income. Who wouldn't like to have more income? You know, it's interesting. I, I read once that the average American assumes that they would be, their life would be great if they just had 50% more income than, than what they have now. In other words, if they earned $50,000 a year, their life would be great if they earned 75. And if they earned 200,000 a year, their life would be great if they earned 300,000 and so on. Yeah, a little more beyond the reach, you know, it's the kind of the assumption that a little more materialism, a little more wealth, assumingly a lot more freedom, a freedom to go wrong in so many cases, as it, as it turns out. Well, the indication is no matter what's going on in our life, we can have a measure of joy knowing that we're connected to the true God the creator of the universe, the real God, not the God of the world, at least the God who masquerades in the world. We can know we have a real future, eternal life, a real career ahead of us in the family of God, in the kingdom of God, as firstborn sons of God. Peace. Did Christ have any peace in his life? Did he exemplify this fruit of the Spirit? Well, before the crucifixion, Christ exhibited real peace, and he stated, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John 14, 27. Interesting. Christ had an element of peace. As we learn to fully trust God, we can have an inner peace, no matter if things don't exactly go right. We can have an inner peace that the world will never have in that way. And we know there is no force in the universe strong enough to separate us from God's purpose, from his plan, from his agenda, for his plan for us individually. We have that peace of mind. Okay, I'm tracking with God. I'm not perfect, but I'm tracking with God. I have a real future. And then there's long-suffering, even at the point of death. Christ found it in himself to pray for his tormentors. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Luke 23, 34. Sometimes we may feel ourselves that we're not fairly treated by others. It can be by others that we know. You know, in this life, in real life, yet to come, things will be different. This life is only training. It's only training for the future. And no other purpose in this life than training for real life. We could say our real career yet to come. We can be patient with our God. That's long-suffering. We can be patient with God. We can't dictate to God, do it on our time schedule, in our way. And we can know that in the end, God's never going to leave us, as he says, or forsake us. He's there with us. He's our guide, our personal trainer, and we can be patient with God. He knows what he's doing. We don't always know what we're doing. God does. In the end, it's always going to be for our good. And then there's kindness. Again, we're speaking of the fruit of the Spirit, of the growth that God expects in us. But we see it exemplified 
most by Jesus Christ. Kindness. Even at the time of his arrest, Christ had the kind-heartedness, even in that stressful, dramatic time, to reach out and heal the high priest servants here. Remember when Peter whacked that off? And he had that much of a focus, you know, facing death to reach out, kind of narrow his focus, that kind of kindness to heal, to do good, even facing his own crucifixion. Kindness may not come naturally with our human nature. It's certainly contrary to human nature. But when we start showing a level of kindness to everyone, not just church members, but everyone in society. It's kind of easy to overlook people in the world sometimes. They, we're, we, we involve them. We pay them for, for business purposes or whatever. But really, kindness has to do with that kind-heartedness to all people. It's training for the future, beginning of the millennium. We're going to have to show that kindness when we see a very rebellious, violent world. They're going to be unsure of who we are, for starters, at least initially. And we're going to have to have that desire to see them succeed and showing that kindness. We have a better way. We're here to help. We're, we're here to show you the way, a better future, better marriage, better family, relationships, and so on. So when we start experiencing and practicing a little more kindness and that consideration to all people, even in the world, we start receiving a little kindness back, don't we? comes back our way. Life gets better. We start experiencing it. It's reciprocal. And then there's goodness, another one of the character traits of God, of Jesus Christ. According to the book of Acts, Peter explained to Cornelius, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, the one about doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That's Acts 10.38. So everything that God does for us, in the end, is for our own benefit. It's for our own benefit. I think of that often in anointing people who are sick, and in reality, God's response is always going to be for our benefit. He always does what's best for us. His intention is for us to succeed, to enter his family. It's not eternal life in the flesh. It's eternal life in the spirit as a very powerful spirit being. Well, it's all positive when we think about what God has in mind. God intends for all of humanity to succeed. And when we start having the same mindset, it begins to permeate our life and our character. And again, it becomes a beautiful state of mind, a very solid, stable state of mind, like God himself operates with. And faithfulness. Christ exhibited the extreme level of faith, of confidence, when he stated, I can of myself do nothing. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. John 5.30. He expressed that level of faith. I think of it as rock, solid confidence. Confidence in God. You can count on him. You can trust him. 
His word is good. You can take it and build your life on it. Rock solid confidence in God and in his will for us. We all want to be faithful to each other. We want other people to be faithful to us, don't we? That's natural, even in marriage. We want our spouse to be faithful to us. We want to be faithful, totally faithful to our God, faithful to each other in our congregations. And in turn, we build stronger relationships, foundation to some degree for the millennium, stronger families, stronger marriages, stronger congregations, as we exercise that level of faithfulness and gentleness, two more evidence, fruit, explaining the mind of God, gentleness, Christ's entire life expressed by that godly character, trait, as he comforted his disciples. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, in other words, for your lives. Matthew eleven twenty nine. So when we take on that attribute, we work at it, we begin to be gentle with others, not harsh, dogmatic know-it-alls, not monologuers, <laughs> but we become gentle with others, wanting to get to know them, to contribute to them, rather than harsh and critical. Things go much better, don't they? They go better in our life and our relationships, but that builds a solid foundation for success. And finally, final point, uh, that, that measure, the measuring sticks of God's character in us, Self-control. And what an incredible thought. Wouldn't you like to have more self-control? I would. You know, people push your buttons uh, sometimes. Something bugs you, irritates you. Self-control. What's supreme self-control that Christ demonstrated, as we saw, as we know. He was being arrested before his crucifixion. He reminded Peter... It was pretty impetuous at times that he could call ten legions of angels. Some some commentators say, hey, that's that's as many as 80,000 angels, if you look at the commentaries. That's a bunch. That's overkill, I suppose. <laughs> he could call ten legions of angels if he wanted to, if he needed to. But he simply stated, how could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen Thus, Matthew 26, verses 53 and 54. So Christ was saying, you know, if I did it another way, if I called ten legions of angels, how would the scriptures be fulfilled? How would I pay the penalty of the sins of the world? How would we incorporate other brothers or sons of God into the family? How could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way. Tremendous self-control, a tremendous attribute of a future son of God for all of us. Really what God needs in his family. It's a, it's a critical character trait that God needs in all of us, that God needs in his family, particularly at the beginning of the millennium. Can, can you imagine what the universe would be like if God lacked self-control? And kind of like the image of the Greek gods who, do, who kind of ruled by emotion only. Can you imagine 
at the start of the millennium what it would be like if we lack self-control. You know, the first time somebody disagreed with us, we might call down fire out of heaven and zap their city. And we know, okay, well, sometimes there's a need to put down rebellion. But in general, a lot of self-control. Uh, even Christ will be taken on initially. Of course, Christ will put down rebellion. But we also have to win them over additionally after rebellion is put down. Enable them to see we want to see them succeed. We're on their side. We have a plan, the plan of God, an agenda to reestablish the planet so they can have a better future, a better life, and eventually even, believe it or not, to them to enter the family of God in due time. Self-control implies that no one, except for God, no one controls us. We don't allow other people's attitudes to control us. I used to say in our family, like a puppet on a string, you know, or you respond, knee-jerk response. Uh, no one ideally controls us except God, obviously the great God. But we don't allow others to dictate to us how we respond our attitude in kind, because of their attitude, you know, that just won't make it in the family of God as a very powerful, ruling brother of Christ, beginning millennium. Well, let's move on to one final point. We're talking about producing spiritual fruit in our life. One final point I think is, is crucial is acquiring the mindset as I started out, like the little engine of, yes, I can. In other words, yes, I can with God's help. This is not just the power of positive thinking. Uh, it's not. It's way beyond that, even though it, it is very positive thinking. It is the power, we could say, of godly thinking. Philippians 4.13. Let's look at... Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. I think an incredible, encouraging reminder, even though I can do nothing of myself, lasting, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, I can accomplish and overcome. I can do whatever God has in mind for me to do as far as change, succeeding, Spiritually, especially, number one, spiritually, developing the mind of God. I can do it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do we believe God's word or do we not? We have to recognize that that applies to us, not just the Apostle Paul. That applies to the children of God. When the ultimate confidence, of course, shifts from self to God, in this case, we absolutely know that we can succeed. We can overcome. We will with God's help. Let's look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. As Paul said to uh, Timothy in verse 12, For this reason... I also suffer these things, life in general. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I've, I know where I'm headed. 
and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. It's another way of saying I've committed my life to God and to the future that he is preparing for me and eventually all mankind. And with God's help, I have every reason to succeed, to change, to grow, produce fruit. Yes, I can. I will not fail with God's help. It's not of our own selves, but with God, I will accomplish. I will do whatever it takes with God's help. Also, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 37. Verse 37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels or principalities or powers, wherever they may be, nor things present nor things to come. And there will be things to come in our life. We're not done. Verse 39, now a little bit poetic, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, seen or unseen. In other words, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, separate us from the plan of God, the purpose of God, the ability to change, the ability to overcome, to succeed. Isn't that extremely positive? Yes, I can mindset that God expects us to have, wants us to have. Not self-confidence, but that's a godly confidence. It's the supreme confidence that God will accomplish his purpose if we do our part, if we look to him, if we quit looking to our past, if we quit looking to our mistakes, we start looking to the total success of the great God. And finally... I'd like to turn to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13. Where Paul said a good, uh, a good summary here. Philippians 3 verse 13. He said, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended to have made it at this moment in time, which is true for us. But one thing I do... Forgetting these things which are behind. In other words, okay, the mistakes I've made, the difficulties I've gone through, and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I look forward to more success spiritually, the kingdom of God, making major changes in my life, and the very work of God, of course, as well. Verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God, in Christ Jesus. And that's another way of saying that, like Paul, you and I have every reason to expect ourselves to grow, to produce spiritual fruit, literally the mind of God, as God is God. Not perfection, we don't get there, but that's our trajectory. That's our target. Past failures, and imperfections are no roadblock for the great God with that mindset and that focus on God himself. So let's remember, in conclusion, of my own self, I can do nothing. Hopefully, 
That's no, not where our confidence is. But I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. That's putting our confidence where, where we have every reason to be encouraged. We will succeed. It's not, there is no doubt, with God's help, if we participate, if we're determined, if we put our confidence in the living God and Jesus Christ, we will succeed. We will overcome. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, who strengthens all of us.